Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real follows the oldest form of learning, which is that of listening to the stories and experience of those around us. Now, today's guest is Lisa Forrest, former Olympic swimmer, broadcaster, author, wife, actor, many, many things. But one of the things that I'm most interested about is her role as the chief living officer at Evermind. Lisa, welcome to the show. Bryn, <laughs> how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Now, one of the first questions, you're over in Sydney um, and I'm all the way over here in Perth. So one of the first questions I'd like to ask you is, what's it like in Sydney currently in this new changed environment? It's interesting. Um, it's a lot quieter on the streets than it normally is, of course. Um, you can find some very, very busy pockets. We, my husband and I went to Palm Beach yesterday. We took his mum back up to the ferry because she lives on the Central Coast. And so we went for a walk on Palm Beach, but we were, um, it, it didn't seem as busy. Um, but anyway, the helicopter came over and the next minute the, um, the lifeguard said off the beach, it's closed, get out of the water. There were a lot of surfers out on the break. So, so we, we, you know, we got about 30 minutes, I suppose, a nice walk on the beach. That was enough. And then we came home. It seemed like there was enough space between everybody, but I understand it was probably like 11 o'clock. So maybe you know, Sunday, there was a nice Sunday, more people would come if they didn't kind of do that. Um, so I think, that, look, I think that people are pretty good. I mean, I know there's lots of stories. I did actually ask a lady in Woolies yesterday how she was going or one of the shoppers, you know, uh, shop, shop attendants, and she said she'd been yelled at that morning. So you do hear pockets of that sort of stuff coming. Um, but mostly I find people are you know, everybody's giving one another space. If you do happen to be at a cafe, you know, all of the bits of paper are down, you know, marking where we're supposed to be and everybody is adhering to that. So, well, not everybody, I shouldn't say that, but my experience is that everybody's, you know, doing the best we can and, and essentially we're doing all right by the, by the sounds of it, the statistics, you know, fingers crossed that it stays like that. But, you know, we're flattening the curve. We're pretty good Australians or we always were, at, you know, keeping steady and, doing the right thing it's like we keep going that way what's it like in Perth <laughs> oh it's very calm I mean like obviously Perth is very calm compared to Sydney at the best of times um but yeah it's very very calm um I found myself yesterday for the first time in a long time since probably I was a child in just walking out across the road without even looking Ah, that's how quiet it is. Which is really nice. Which was really, and it was only halfway across that I suddenly think, I didn't look. <laughs> <laughs> my husband reckons I've been social distancing all my life because we always joke that, like, when we go swimming, I like him to be in the other lane. <laughs> I was going to ask, are you still getting the opportunity to go for a swim? We do. And I, I go regularly, maybe two or three times a week. Oh. Maybe, maybe more. No, three times. I've got to be careful of my shoulders now. They've never given me any trouble, but one is just a little bit niggly and, you know, I'm 56, so it's done plenty of rotations. <laughs> yes, it's served you well. Yeah, be kind to my shoulders. <laughs> so as I said in the intro, um, in 2016, you created Evermind. Yes. Um, so I'm really interested before we go any further just to find out the story behind that and and why that came about because there must have been like a, a personal epiphany drop or something like that well 
trouble with my last book. Um, it was called Inheritance. It was a fantasy novel. It was set in the circus. And I just took myself down into these terrible spirals of doubt. And it made, it, like, the writing of it um, just really... <laughs> unpleasant and I was unpleasant to live with and so I, I what I called it trouble with my thinking I knew from the time I was 18 that I had trouble with my thinking because I told journalists that when I won gold medals at my second Commonwealth Games I nearly didn't make it I was I struggled with motivation that year and Rocky had changed my thinking so I just knew that it was my thinking I didn't know how to make it permanent and so you know, over the years, that trouble had ebbed and flowed and it had really become troublesome in that last book. And so I decided I would stop and sort out this trouble with my thinking because, like, at 18, maybe it made sense. I hadn't done that much. But at 48, I'd written many books, you know, as you said. You know, I've been on... I've hosted my own TV shows and radio shows and acted and lived in New York. So why was I still torturing myself with this doubt? And so... Yeah, because from the outside looking in, you'd be almost the epitome of success. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and it shouldn't, it just shouldn't, yeah, I was like, this shouldn't happen. Like, why are you, and I knew it was torturing myself. I knew it was my thinking. So I wanted to do something about that. And so, so I that torture sort of look and feel like on a daily oh, basis? Of it constantly, no matter what you do, it's never enough. Right. And so it just, you know, it's sort of just, um, kind of sad in the end too. It's like, well, hold on a minute. Why, why would you feel like that given all that you've achieved? Um, so I kind of just went, decided, right, I was 48. My grandparents lived till they were 96. And, um, you know, in swimming, we're in the habit of kind of um, negative splitting. So, you know, the second half of your race, yeah. stronger than the first. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go and sort it out. And I started with a life coaching course. So mm. I thought, oh, there'll be more modern motivation, you know, than when I was a kid and it was amateur. And we used to have essentially sports psychology back then was, you know, a few models, mottos that your coach ran up, wrote up on the blackboard. So mine was when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But I was kind of right. using the whip. Um, by and the you time, would use that as a whip to yourself. I wasn't tough enough, you know, all that sort of stuff. So um, right. things were coming out of my mind to my son, like he was about seven. And it was kind of down that kind of tough sort of path. And I was like, I didn't believe this when it was when it was happening as a teenager. Like, why are you saying it now? So through the coaching and... Wow. and and, you know, I'm, I was introduced to mindfulness um, meditation through a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And then I learned a few things. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is what everybody needs to know. <laughs> so I started Evermind as a coaching practice and to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction. Wow. Do yeah. you think that some of, those, some of that, you know, that, that drive and the toughness was what helped uh, deliver the success earlier in your life with the swimming. And so that story almost, the story that, and, that you were telling yourself sort of worked during that period of time, but it had reached its shelf life and you were still using it and it was time for a new one. But it was, do, do you see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. I think it had reached its shelf life um, by the time I'd retired. I think that's why I retired. When I was able to look, a couple of things happened together. I started this coaching course. I enrolled in this, uh, I just did a webinar. It wasn't compulsory for the course about mindfulness-based stress reduction. I was a complete skeptic when it came to meditation. I was like, I don't want to sit still and do nothing. Like meditation is for me. I'm a doer, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but I was counterintuitive to do Exactly. So, um, so I was a bit desperate to, to sort out the thinking. 
And also a mum approached me um, wondering if I coach teenagers and she told me a story about her teenager who after a history of, um, of um, anxiety and depression was now cutting um, or self-harm. And so um, then, and then mum told me a story about how um, her child started in sport. It was very similar to mine, which was essentially um, entered a running race and, um, and sort of got their way all the way to, to the state championships and then before the final sort of freaked out, had a panic attack and wouldn't run. And the mum said to me, um, you know, we just thought, oh, well, if you've got to have, you might have the, temp the right natural ability, but if you don't have the temperament, then what's the point? And so when she told me that story, I was like, I realised I'd been telling a story for 10 years since my first book came out of my first race at the DY Ladies Swimming Club. Um, and I too had been a kid in tears. I was in tears all the time. In fact, I'm still in tears, you know, quite often. <laughs> but, but for all the right reasons nowadays. Yeah. Well, no, no. I, I mean, I get nervous and I get a bit teary. You know, I just get, I'm a bit shy um, and a bit scared. And I keep putting myself into these, you know, challenging sort of things because I enjoy it. But what the DY ladies did um, was the moment I burst into tears on the blocks they put an older girl in the water right in front of me in the lane in front of me. She just jumped straight in. It was like they had a policy. They were so used to seeing little girls cry. And so she just gave me a big grin and said, come on, sweetheart, you can do this. And so I, the gun went off and I threw myself in and she walked backwards down the lane, beckoning me forward. And I had a sort of, you know, head out of the water freestyle and she got me to the 25 metre line in that first race. And then, uh, you know, it was transformative because then I knew, oh, right, my fears were underestimating me and so once um i had that little epiphany if you like of that story i told it for years but more as a kind of quaint way that we started back in the amateur days yeah. <laughs> um the professional sports world now you know and so then i realized wow well that's leadership isn't it that's you know we they didn't judge me those ladies they were like it's really normal that you want to cry you might drown on the way if you if nobody's in the water with you so they put took the immediate fear of drowning out of the way and then just beckoned me on and i think and i was like oh wow so then with with that as the as the guide if you like i then remembered that there were like four or five more times between 8 and 14 when I had been in tears and somebody did something kind, they held my hand, they walked beside me, told me a story, did something to, for me to understand that my fears were again underestimating me and I could, I did have the resources to meet the demand. That's how we define sort of psychological stress. We can get into that later. So over and over again, I had found courage through being led towards that thing that I feared. And yeah. then once I came to Australia, it was just a different Unfortunately, in the late 70s, it was just we'd fallen behind the rest of the world. And that first um, team meeting that I went to for the Commonwealth Games in 1978 was all threats. You'll be sent home if you train hard enough, you don't prove you're tough enough, you're not disciplined enough, if the girls put on weight. And so for four years, that's the way that it was when we swam for Australia. So it wasn't like that at home for me. I was... You know, my coaches and my parents had a lot of faith and trust in me. But once you got on those major teams, particularly after the first one, which was just so stressful, um, yeah. I think that in my body all the time, like, oh, God, if I let people down, then and I think that that voice was given, you know, given sort of oxygen then. And probably once you're trying to be tough, then tears are not tough. So you might not be crying in your mind. You know, the tears are, in fact, saying, I don't know how to do this. 
And that's what that voice is saying, you know, you, you can't do this. It's, you know, it's really trying to protect you. But there's a certain point where you don't want to be protected. You In the final at the Olympic Games, you know you can do it. It doesn't help to have the voice there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting the, the difference in approach from leading, leading you towards something as opposed to contracting and don't, don't do this. Yeah. yeah, well, even with something like this, you know, we started talking about COVID. So do we lead with, we can do this. Australians are really good at this. We can flatten the curve. This is just what we need to do. It's going to be a bit of pain for a moment. We've got plenty of food, plenty of toilet paper. I mean, people can still panic um, because, you know, that is the nature of the stress response. We fight, flight, or uh, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, so there's three different responses. If you, but if you threaten people, then you don't really know how they're going to react. They will actually you know, in their thousands flock to Bondi Beach or <laughs> you just never know. So it is that difference. Well, do we encourage by, um, by, by setting the bar and saying we can do this and actually using positive reinforcement or do we threaten, you know, it's a carrot and a stick approach, you know, so mm. um, I'm a big believer in the carrot. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, have a mind is around um, mindfulness-based um, practice. Can you tell me what mindfulness means for you? Because it is a word that gets used a lot. It gets marketed a lot. It's this can almost be this Nirvana state at times. Um, what does it actually mean for you? Um, for me, the first um, guided meditation that I met again, I was like, I wasn't sitting, I was walking. I was listening to this audiobook. I'd been to the webinar. I still didn't understand it. I wrote down this name that she'd said, John Kabat-Zinn. And I thought, oh, well, I'll go to audible.com and I'll see if this man's got a book and maybe he'll help me understand it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's kind of embarrassing now because he's like, the, he's like the grandfather of this modern mindfulness movement. The only book of his that wasn't abridged was called Adventures in Mindfulness. So I downloaded it and thought, okay, well, tomorrow morning I'll walk, listen to that um, rather than fiction because I write fiction, so that's what I normally listen to when I walk. Anyway, um, there he was, like, I'm walking along. He said, okay, we're going to do this breath meditation. So, um, uh, so he said, let's, you know, let's we'll just concentrate on the feeling of the breath moving out of the body. He said, now you may be thinking, um, so am I breathing right? And, he said, and I kind of laughed because I was thinking, am I breathing right? He's like, you've been doing that for, you know, you've been breathing for 20 or 50 years, but you never thought, am I breathing right? So that's a thought, let it go and come back to the breath. Yeah. And I was like, let it go. I can let a thought go. I don't have to follow every single thought in my mind. Yes. And that was the liberation for me that I could let a thought go and come back to the breath, just the feeling of it. And then thoughts mostly disappear. Of course, there are thoughts that don't. And it's like, sometimes we're stuck on that roundabout, you know, of, you know, never able to get off this thinking roundabout or this train of thought. We call it that, don't we? Mm. Um, and so then what mindfulness is. So first of all, mindfulness is awareness. It's awareness that, oh, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking thoughts about the future that hasn't happened yet and I'm, you know, getting myself all wound up. So can I let it go and come back to the breath? Um, and then mindfulness is also, um, it's just this beautiful way of training the mind to, to be present. And also, I mean, the other thing that is, I'm, I'm not giving you a great definition, but it's awareness, non-judgmental awareness or noticing, in fact, that we are judgmental all the time but letting not judging the judgment but also i often joke that mindfulness should be called bodyfulness because for me body what, sorry bodyfulness yes 
because I came looking for trouble with my thinking and what I realised was that I was missing the messages that my body was giving me mm. that I acted in fear, not always that I wanted to be in fear, but that's just a natural response of the human organism. We're in a situation, you know, at the Olympic Games, we're worried about letting people down and all those sorts of things. They're not rational fears or they're not fears that are going to kill us, but the body contracts. So to notice, oh, I've contracted and just to be able to go, okay, what's what might be the best way to take care of myself right now? Now, it might just be nice soothing thoughts. You can do this, you're okay. It may just be breathing. It may just be relaxing the shoulders. So for me, mindfulness is awareness. And once you are aware, you are free. You're not on autopilot. You're not just acting out of react that your reactive habits. You're actually going, oh, I've got space now to go, huh, what might be the wisest way to take care of myself in this moment? Hmm. It's like, um, yeah, opening up the space for possibility and probability. Right, well, we can just that space. spaciousness to go, oh, normally I'd be hooked in and I'd be doing this. Yeah. But now, no, I'm choosing something else, whatever that might be. Yeah. Now that's, um, I mean, even I write in a book, like even for somebody who was looking for awareness, suddenly having all that awareness can be kind of scary because you realise that there's no one else to blame. <laughs> like it's quite a lot of it has to do with you. Now, not all of it, obviously. Mindfulness cannot fix a toxic workplace. You can't bring somebody in to teach everybody mindfulness and, and suddenly the workplace will improve if the conditions are terrible, if you're being expected to work, you know, 20-hour days and all that sort of stuff. But what yes. you if you, it, it will empower um, somebody perhaps to have the courage to leave and go, Do I, is this really where I want to be? Like yeah. um, just before Christmas, um, I ran into a chap who had been part of a um, uh, four-week um, sort of program that I led at, at his organisation. He organised for me to come. And he said to me um, just before Christmas when I met him, did you end up getting paid? And I was like, yeah, sure I did. But I remember then that um, I was paid half of it up front and the other half after four weeks. But it had taken a while to get that second instalment. So I called him and said, can we get on to it? Anyway, it turned out that was happening all the time at, um, at work. And so afterwards he said, what did it, he said, I don't work there anymore. Your course helped me to go, right, I'm going to do something about it. I went to the Fair Work Ombudsman. I got the information. I gave it to everybody else and we all left. They all left. So it, it had been a constant problem and, and there were obviously other present uh, problems. But, yeah, so mindfulness is very empowering in that way that it actually gives you agency to go, ah, oh, as you say, that space. Well, is this right that I'm being treated like this? Do I deserve better? Am I going to go look for something better and, and find a new way to live? Hmm. And that's, and that's one of the main reasons why I really wanted to speak to you because right now we'll be having a lot of uh, reduction of space with fear and, and uncertainty. And we, we, want to, we want to cling on to things that help us to feel certain, even if they are fear inducing, you know, um, I think, you know, it's no surprise that um, hits on new sites have gone like, ridiculously high. And, you know, we have to remember that the, the news, love it or hate it, the media is, is, is a business and it's there through eyes on. So this is like a field day for them. Yeah. And, um, you know, in our house here, we, we have, we have like five to 10 minutes where, 
we go and have a quick look at what's the latest update from the WA Premier or the Prime Minister. Quick look at bang, 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 where are we at? Are there new restrictions? Yes, no, bang, and we're off. Actually, actually, actually found myself recently forgetting about it for an hour or two, which I thought was an amazing achievement. <laughs> yeah, I, I have been saying quite a bit um, over the past week as I've been talking about Glide. Like I'm 56, so I remember a time when there was morning news and afternoon news. And, you know, a new quarter to eight broadcast on the ABC, you know, there was the 15 minutes of news and then there was the seven o'clock news at night. And you didn't look at the news or you might have heard the news on the radio for five minutes or something like that. You know, it was, it was very um, different. The 24 hour news service. I'd be really interested actually, I've never looked at the figures, but it would be very interesting to know if our increase in um, the uptake of anti-anxiety and antidepressant medication has happened with the advent of the 24 hour news cycle. <laughs> mm, <laughs> I think it would. Um, but yeah, so definitely for me, I do. Okay, I'll look at it in the morning and I'll look at it at night. I'm not, I won't look at it during the day. Mm. Do you um, think that, because um, I'm starting to, because I've been interested in the world of um, meditating, mindfulness, creating space, possibility and probability and look at it from all different shapes and, and sizes. And that's, you know, that's been helped through the podcast and, and, and all the different and amazing people I've spoken to. But I'm finding even some of my friends who completely don't go there are now even they're getting to the point of, oh, geez, I'm so fed up with the news. I'm going to switch it off. There's nothing good about it. And so I, I feel like there's almost um, the, whilst we, whilst, some of us may have been looking at, you know, expanding space, you know, voluntarily um, at a time when you could or couldn't and you could still just about focus and function through, through life. But almost it feels like now that there's boats burning behind us and, and some, of, some people who haven't necessarily focused are almost now going, Christ, I'm becoming very aware of, the real stressors that are behind me right now because I have to sit and focus and be with myself. Yes, yeah. I look, nobody would want, um, you know, this horrible virus to have happened and to have turned our lives upside down in the way that it has and to have killed so many people and, of course, for us to be so poorly, um, 100%. you know, prepared. What it does offer us, though, is a giant pause. Mm. And, and that opportunity for us to say, okay, so, wow, we've told ourselves, look, we've told ourselves for 10 years when it comes to climate change, we just can't do it. The problem is too big and there's no point in doing anything about it. You know, that's quite one of the sort of ways that the, those who, the dismissive, you know, argue. And yet we've just shown, number one, that, well, in Australia at least, when this very big problem came, we, we acted swiftly, decisively, we all got on board and we've, you know, the, the, the statistics are good for us flattening the curve and for us being in a good place. Um, the other thing that's happening, as you say, is, is that everyone's at home. So routines have been changed. All those stories that we've told ourselves about the way that we, you know, just can't live, you know, make life less busy or do it. It's just the way it is. Well, that's suddenly been thrown up in the air too. And we can go, Wow. That story was really interesting, but I suppose I can. You know, it's quite interesting to see families, you know, out in the park, all on bikes, 
or doing what they're doing and actually being away, as you say, from the screen. And once you actually start to do that, you know, what, as you know from that space that you, that you get when you practice mindfulness and if you actually follow the other stuff, I mean, there's just not the meditation, of course, there's the um, beautiful framework, if you like, that the Buddha created, which is really a beautiful observation of the mind. You know, the second foundation of mindfulness is that we move towards what's pleasant and move away from what's unpleasant. Well, if we're so used to the unpleasant and, you know, just being on the, the, in the rat, part of the rat race and having to get everything done and doing it in a particular way, and suddenly we get a feeling of, oh, there's another way to be, and that's quite pleasant. <laughs> so yeah. I actually let go. It, you know, there's this theory with um, a lot of the work of a man called Judson Brewer when it comes to addiction and stuff. He works on the second foundation completely. If we can actually stay with or notice the pleasant sensations and then when it's also unpleasant, notice that the nervous system wants to move towards pleasant. Yes. So actually let go of habits that are unpleasant if we get enough space to feel how pleasant the pleasant is. Yeah. <laughs> sense. So, so I think it's giving us, an, uh, now, of course, there are the powers that be, the, you know, the, the um, power structures in our society that don't want us to change the way that we're living because growth and profit and all that sort of stuff is reliant on it. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that, um, you know, that is sort of managed once it is clear that here at least we've flattened the curve and what's going to be on the other side of all of this um, stimulus. And I think that's where we start to go, okay, well, well, can we question what they're saying, you know, and that, that will be really interesting to know, you know, is there a desperate need to get back to how it was or will we have had a couple of months to go, oh, no, there's an alternative and I'm not sure I want it to go back to how it was. Yeah, because it's almost like, I mean, the, the best example I can give is, you know, when you go on a holiday for like two or three weeks and it's, and it's, just, it's just you going on holiday or you and your family go on holiday, but then you come back and, you know, you almost, and I've had it done to me, you sit in the office and people go, how was your holiday? And you go, great, oh, it was awesome. And, and, you, and it's so jarring right down to a soul level, as in I was just living how I would really like to be and then I'm back forced into this system that makes me do these things and be aware of my watch and make me think about this stuff that's not so creative and expansive and, and, and exploratory. And then, and then you get the, then you get the almost like it's the, it's the death sentence, which is, Oh, well, give it a half a day. You've forgotten about your holiday. You'll be back into it. And you're just like, Oh, go away. <laughs> but it's almost like we're all, and you raise a really interesting point that's been coming, uh, I've almost been feeling into the last couple of days, which is we're all going through like one big extended, and we'll say holiday, but holiday-esque type um, environment where things have been disrupted, patterns uh, have been disrupted, our beliefs are being challenged, our identity is going to shift as a result of that. And then all of a sudden out the back of it, you're going to have this big system that's almost going, well, you normally feed me, I need feeding now. And, and then we're all collectively gonna feel this jarring. And I think we're gonna find a lot more people go, mm, I'm not so sure. It'll be interesting. Um, and obviously we're speaking from a position of some privilege in that we do have a comfortable home to be in and all that sort of stuff. And we do have, um, my husband's work is, 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 looks like, you know, it's still ticking along. So we haven't lost a job or anything like that. So um, there is, 
there are a number of people, of course, who needed to go back to normal so they get a proper job and everything on the other side, or normal, <laughs> or how it was. But yes. um, I think also that all of that is going to be interesting to watch what happens um, on the other side of, of this because it's going to have positives and negatives. And, um, and so, yeah, what will, what, what, will come, what will we take out of it? It's going to be, it'll be fascinating. Mm. It's interesting that the answer you started just before you started with what this opportunity offers us. And it was, I really liked the words you used there because again, that's create, that's a fantastic example of opening up the space to choose. Um, you can either have this, you can appear, you can perceive this to be done to us or it can be something to consider, something to be thankful for, something to be grateful for. And yeah, again, it's, it's opening up the space to choose. Yeah. yeah. And the, uh, the, you know, this, the definition of stress hardy, if you like, is like these three C's. It's a commitment to living, to commit to what we're doing. It's, it's, um, uh, the understanding of what's in our control and what isn't. Mm. And in many ways, this is what the DY ladies were. It was really fun to go back um, in Glide and, and get a bit of a history of them because they'd been, they had a club down there at DY since the late 1920s. You know, they, so they'd been they'd been through the Second World War and those women that had teenagers that were, had, were coming up with ideas of ways to raise money for the, you know, War Widows Society and all that sort of stuff, they'd run, um, they'd run exhibition races um, with, with um, barbed wire all around the pool and around the beach during the Second World War. So Fanny Durack and people like that had um, swam exhibition races down there to raise money. So they were very active. So they knew what they had control, could control and they went about they had a commitment to doing that. And then the third part of that is, yes, seeing challenges as opportunities. Um, and so if we can align ourselves to that, I often, we talk about it in mindfulness all the time that a beautiful practice to, or a beautiful quality to cultivate is curiosity because yeah. fear is contracted. Whereas curiosity, the moment you go, well, well, what is going on? What's going on in the body? What's going on in my thoughts? What's going on in the world? And is there an opportunity here that we could actually, um, whether we could, that we could benefit from this moment? Yes. It's more expansive. Fear can't be present when curiosity is there. You know, you can't be contracted and open at the same time. So it's kind of, you can shift between the two, but if you can keep remembering to come back to curiosity, coming back to openness and as you say, choice, I mean, that Viktor Frankl quote is, is beautiful. I'm paraphrasing it, but it's between stimulus and response. There is a there is a space. In that space, there is a choice, and in that choice is our freedom and our growth. It's you know it's a really um, uh, it's a beautiful beautiful um, quote and something to remember all the time. Of course, as I said to you, the power structures who need us to get back to getting on the rat race on the treadmill. You know, I don't think they want this. Sort of, they don't want us to think about our freedom and our growth. They want us to be totally addicted to stuff. To yeah, addicted to stuff. Yeah. Um, it's also a great, I think an, another, it's also a great opportunity because I know you talk about compassion and you've mentioned that you've mentioned that words already, but, um, and we're starting to see a whole lot of certainly here where I live, we're see a whole lot of kindness and giving, um, it'd be interesting to see when we get to the next, it's all, almost the, the next level of compassion for me, which is self-compassion. Because we, we are, like you've demonstrated in the early part of this discussion, 
so very good at not being self-compassionate you know we can be as kind as you know yeah. i'm sure you you went through life thinking that you're a compassionate person and being very kind to other people whilst beating yourself up at the same time so do you see this as an opportunity for us to i think as this confinement of, of isolation continues it will take us from being kind to those around and actually to a point where we need to be kind to ourselves. Yeah, well, the, um, you know, the experts, the Buddhist experts that talk about compassion say that if you cannot be compassionate with yourself, then you're not really being compassionate with others. Now, mm. what you're doing is you're, um, you know, you're helping them, but perhaps you want something from it, from them. That's yes. to being able to just offer them your, um, compassion and being able to help hold their pain or whatever it may be. Um, and so it starts with us, you know, in that sense. But I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, yeah, it's much easier to, to, to go and do things for other people rather than sort of do nice things for yourself. And we often use that. Um, that dark abyss, which is yourself. <laughs> you know, that's what's really interesting. Like, what do you mean like, you don't deserve it? That's what's sort of... Um, you know, an interesting place. But I've, I've, you know, I've had, I use the metaphor all the time and I've had women, you know, in their probably 60s in my class who won't agree with it. But on, on the plane, we hear it all the time, put your own oxygen mask on before you can help others. And I've had um, women, you know, in their 60s say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. Like, well, is that really very smart then? If you're not putting your own oxygen mask on, like literally how much help are you going to be to the people who need it? Mm. Um, and I think that even just it's a it's I the, the the shift that we need to make when it comes to compassion is believing that it's um, that it's a strength. Yes. Um, and so Brene Brown's done a lot of work in that area in terms of seeing that vulnerability, understanding our vulnerability is actually a strength rather than kind of trying to avoid it, trying to harden ourselves against it. Um, Which is back to your Australia swimming days. And well, sport. I think this the sport world has, you know, it's, the corporate world has adopted a lot of the sport um, metaphors, if you like, of um, toughening up and hardening up and pushing through and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it is very, very. At the same time, those ladies were able to hold my fear and empathise with it and still lead me through. They didn't judge me for it. And I think mm. quite a lot of the that lack, that compassion, that fear of compassion, is that somehow we will let people let people off and not and in fact when i was starting to tell before i wrote i'd been talking about these stories before i wrote glide you know for probably a year and i tell that story of the dy ladies in regards to leadership and so many people just gets to everybody like everyone goes oh yeah and that's that that is compassion oh just being able to go yeah it's hard right now hmm. and just be with that it's not asking you to wallow or to actually go oh yes that's just so hard I want to really it's actually just yeah 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 which is where a lot of society previously enjoys being oh, we've yeah. gone from denying it to almost acknowledging it but getting stuck on wallowing and I had two responses to it um to that story um well there was a group of people that said yes absolutely then they'll put it oh no I couldn't to see myself cry and so they'd walk the child away from the challenge now um uh, Joseph Campbell is a man who created something called the hero's journey, which is like a storytelling structure. And he researched, you know, myths and legends over centuries. And like about the third um, step on the hero's journey is refusing the call to adventure. Yes. 
starts refusing the call to adventure as, um, you know, turning the negative positive to a negative, the flowering world becomes a barren wasteland of stones. Every house the hero builds will be a house of death. Like, is that not um, um, uh, procrastination? Yeah. I know that feeling, right? So you can walk your child away but haven't learnt anything. So who are you helping? Are you helping the child or are you helping your own discomfort? You know, we could, one might say that's compassionate. Correct. And then the other response was, oh, well, I was just pushed in for my own good. You know, the trouble with kids these days, they're not tough enough or all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, okay, so being pushed in for your own good, again, whose who's, um, discomfort is being helped? Mm. <laughs> or the person who was feeling the discomfort and judged them and pushed them in. So that's not compassionate either, is it? It's just a really... It's like a, two ends of a bell curve. Really, you know, the, the capacity to actually hold another person's pain and not judge it and not tell them what to do based on what you think is the thing to help them find their way through it. And to even to be able to say, what can I do right now? What, what, what is it that you need me to do to help you in this moment? And let that person who's stressed come up with it. That's compassion. Hmm. This would say is true compassion. And then there's sort of theories uh, that there's people talk about compassion overload but the Buddhists would say that it's actually empathic distress. The compassion has two, two forces to compassion. There's, there's empathizing and then there's this inner circle of empathizing and an outer circle of courage and high action. So you're not, you're not getting stuck. So the empathic distress is getting stuck in and getting involved in someone else's or your own um, distress without being able to get out of it. So compassion is not, you can't be, the Buddhists would say you can't be, overloaded with compassion the more you practice the more you've got it's one of the immeasurables um so yeah just being aware of that that in fact it's not empathizing to the point where you're now caught in the, in the distress is the person who's holding compassion you're the one who's able to either set your own boundary i mean there's a certain point if some people just don't want to come out of that place then there's not much you can do yes. but say what can i do how can we help you let that person come up with what they need that's very a very compassionate act Hmm. And I like, I like the bit you brought up in there about um, part of the hero's journey being the refusal. Well, refusal of the call. Refusal of the call to challenge. Because it's almost like that call starts with a little, almost like a little toothpick on your shoulder, just a little dip, like that. And, and it's there and you have to go. And, and because you know, I've, I've firmly the belief that life is a growth centric experience. It's what we're here to do to take potential into realize and, 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 you know, turn things into ex experience stuff and learn and expand. And that call to learning call to action, like I said, starts off with a little pinprick and then a toothpick, and then it becomes something a bit blunter and a bit blunter and a bit blunter and blunter and blunter, and blunter until it is, an almighty bang and of course people do i think that's what a lot of that you know that's what uh, you know, a lot of the bitterness and um anger is caused by in you know in our society not actually paying attention to the call and having the kind of courage or not having anyone around that can help you find the courage to answer it and that's kind of where on a collective level i feel just feeling my way through where we are now in this disrupted coronavirus and I, I've been quite clear with friends that I speak to is I'm not enjoying the fact that people are getting ill and dying 
but the disruption that's caused by the presence and the date and the management of this thing, I'm actually really enjoying. And I almost feel it's necessary. Um, I happen to be one of those people who enjoy going off into the abyss to learn. Um, but I feel like collectively it's necessary because those toothpicks and those taps on the shoulders and the wax on the shoulders and all of those have been growing and growing and growing for all of us. And it almost feels like we've all brought ourselves to this place. And so, you know, I am choosing to see it as an amazing opportunity for a large body of us to decide that things are going to be different. And that's why I was interested to speak to you about self-compassion, because the more we delve further into self-compassion, the more we'll get to the end point and go, no, Mr. Machine, I'm not sure I will, that that works for me anymore. Look, in a perfect world, that would be really nice. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I think it was Arundhati Roy I read yesterday, what she called it, the portal to the portal of the, of the pandemic, you know, this opportunity to walk through and to leave our prejudice and fear and everything behind and to imagine something different. And I think that that's a beautiful idea. Um, and at the same time, how do we do that? Because um, I, I was listening to um, Rebecca Huntley on Big Ideas earlier this year and the research that she has done around um, climate change. And, you know, there's sort of the 18%, I'm one of them who vote always for parties that have uh, climate change policies and that sort of stuff. Then there's the, the 15%, the dismissive end. You know, we're right on board with all the language of war footing and, you know, the war footing and sort of getting, you know, being mobilised to act. And then there's a good 30% in the middle um, or 30% of people who believe it. They believe the science, but they're not yet voting consistently for parties that have, and, uh, for, that have climate change policies. And one of the things they did was to find, uh, they tested a number of, um, or her research involved testing on the outer edges of Sydney and Melbourne, um, testing messages with these people, with this group who are committed. They don't need to be convinced about the science, but just to vote and to be engaged. And of the... Um, eight out of nine messages, I think it was, eight were science-based, fear-based, you know, what's going to happen if we don't deal with it? And there was one message which that worked, and that was um, how clever Australians are, the things that we've invented, um, the capacity for us to be, um, uh, you know, renewable, to be superpowers in renewables, we've got everything we need, and to actually be leaders in the world in that area. And that resonated. So I'm just really mindful of that when it comes to what we're going through now. Um, there's a lot of fear. And so to, to tell people that, um, you know, that this could be a wonderful opportunity, you know, is not necessarily where they're at. So again, it's compassionate, I think, to be- It's very just, triggering, isn't it? Yeah, you just don't, they just don't need to hear it. I've, I've got a young person that I mentor um, who lives in very difficult circumstances and she's, you know, doing her HSC. She's in a tough, a tough environment at home. She, you know, she just doesn't need to hear that this is a wonderful opportunity right now, even though what we're talking about would be a kind of society that may benefit people who are in, um, who are struggling, you know, who are in really tough circumstances. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And at the same time, I think really important that we're positive and just gently leading people through the portal, you know, through the, mm, through the gateway. Towards the, yeah, towards the thing or towards where you'd like to be. they they're going to be scared on the either, either side. This is, you know, we've had fear-based politics for so many years. They're not going to suddenly turn around and be different people, I don't think. So we just have no. to be prepared for that. But does this not then 
venture further into the realm of um, faith in in terms of what's on the other side of the gate. And I'm not, and, and you know, as soon as you mention faith, you can easily go to oh, God's spiritualism or anything. But even if we bring that faith really close and and you know, faith in yourself that you will be all right, because we have had such a been operating in such a predictable cyclical pattern based reality and 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 way of living and that's all been disrupted which is you know hugely confronting and but again that's an opportunity to demonstrate some faith that you know i will be all right yes. my family will be all right and 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 start to build faith in something bigger than yourself and that I was journaling this out the other day. The bigger than yourself could be a bigger version of yourself that you've not quite connected to yet. It doesn't have to go all the way to God, Buddha, Allah, whatever you want. I think it's, you know, we are all products of the society that we live in and um, and we have been convinced for a number of years of being, you know, we have, courage is not, has not been um, uh, sort of, um, we haven't been empowered, if you like, I don't think. To, to think in the sorts of ways, but it had to be done for us to face this. So it's kind of a, you know, I'd love to think that we've unleashed the, ge the genies out of the bottle and we've all got this wild amount of courage now to take on anything. <laughs> so at the same time, you know, it, it's, it, it has been a long period of, of um, even like, as you say, like the, the old aspirationalist, you know, that um, has been encouraged for a number of years. So, wouldn't it be nice if we sort of rather than acquiring stuff or aspiring to, you know, I don't know, the, the private school, we've got the really good um, uh, contact book and everything at the end of it. So it, wouldn't, it would be nice. I'm not sure that at this point all of that aspiring has all that done us a whole lot of good. Like there's a lot of insecurity out there. We've, we've got yes. all that in the world, but it's not going to help us with the virus, right? So it would be so nice if we could move into aspiring to wisdom, um, patience, um, compassion, um, those sorts of things. If we could expand this notion of what we're inspired to do, that would be wonderful. Um, and again, I just, you know, I, but I, I don't want to judge anybody who isn't in that place because they've been told for 10 years that it's not possible to, to do anything, or 20 years, that, you know, the most important thing is to acquire stuff and to keep up with other people. I think. Um, so we can't judge people for being in that place. Hmm. What are you learning about yourself through this? <laughs> uh, I think the beautiful, the thing that I really like about it is that I had an awareness practice, if you like, from the time I was a kid. I was eight years old when I decided I was going to go to the Olympic Games. And so you become aware, you want to get better, you know, and you want, you see what other people are doing and how they're getting better. And you, so you're gathering all the stuff. You see, even when on that first Australian team, you know, adults that, we knew we were behind the rest of the world. There, were, there was a modern way to train and there was the old-fashioned way. And so many people still stayed with the old-fashioned way. I'm like, why don't adults just change? This is the way, the modern way is the way to do it. And so even as a kid, I had this lesson that adults don't change, you know, that for some reason, some of them get wow. So I didn't want to be like that. When I first started this whole journey, I thought maybe it's just my obsession with changing all the time and not being an adult who's stuck that's got me in this trouble. But what I think is really beautiful about the whole, I mean, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which when John Kabat-Zinn created it, he took out all the references to Buddhism, even though it is heavily based in, yeah. in the, um, the actual path. And what is beautiful, I think, about um, all of this sort of stuff is that the Buddha, or 
Siddhartha as he was before he was the Buddha, he, he created this fantastic roadmap of, of what, what's going on in the mind, the body and the mind, the heart. And so I, I had a lot of awareness, but I didn't know what to do with it. What yes. he did was a framework to go, here's, here's what I've observed, check it out and see if it works. So, so when something goes on, you can sort of go, oh, yeah, okay, that's really normal, that's human. Because I think what I judged when, I, when it came to getting better, I judged my faults as like a fault with me as opposed to being able to say, oh, oh that's just being human. <laughs> like, yep. Oh, that, that voice in your head, that's the negativity bias. You know, we've got a brain that has evolved over Which years. Which is being self-compassionate. And so the capacity for us to go, oh, being human, okay. Let's not identify with it. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just means in that moment there's a bit more to learn. And so that's what I really like about it. So I learn all the time. Like when the Prime Minister um, called for around the middle of March when he started to say, okay, anybody coming home should self-isolate for two weeks had this, I was walking on the street over in Newtown, I had this, this feeling in my body, like hackles kind of on my skin. It was heavy, it was dark. And I was like, ah. Oh. And before I could even knew what the emotion was, the first thought was, um, I feel like I'm being stalked. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> and so I was able to just get curious and go, you know, where is it in the body? Oh, yeah, what's, you know, what is is being stalked a good way to think about this well no it doesn't have legs you know it can't stalk you a virus can't stalk you what might be the best way to to go about and, I, and really it was just the body answered like it was just a big breath and a couple of breaths later it, it had passed and you know i felt the sunshine all that sort of stuff and later even i was able to reflect isn't that interesting like to have this that thought then and it's 40 years since i was selected on that olympic team I was in year 11. I was made captain of that team. It was the end of March. And a week later, we had a whistle by the phone because we had our first threat and I wasn't allowed to go anywhere by myself at that point for the next three months until we sort of finally got away. At that point, the Olympic Federation hadn't decided that we'd go. So isn't it interesting, like, that idea that also that we've got, our body is this storehouse of um, experiences and we've yes. had old things in the body I thought, isn't that interesting that that thought should come now with this virus and it's a reflection of 40 years ago when, of course, that was probably a similar thing going on, the, the, the feeling of being stalked. I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. So, so I thought, oh, it's kind of nice that, that is, that's gone. I feel as though that whatever it was, that little hold, that thing that, was, that I was holding on to has been released. And um, so I, I just think, um, well, um, it just, I think that the, the whole kind of framework of the of the four foundations, the outfall path, all of the things that he talked about are just so relevant today and are so helpful, I think, for managing challenges. Mm. Mm. I think the, the saddest thing I find about um, the whole mindfulness and the meditation thing is that everybody thinks it's about relaxing. And I've been asked a few times, oh, but do you think that you would have still had the same drive if you'd known this when you were swimming? And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. It's not, to me, it's not about relaxing. It's about being relaxed in those big, mo in those challenging moments, being, yes. being, you know, integrated, like keeping the, the soothing system of the brain connected to the emotional centers so that you can actually settle all the nervousness and stay calm in these really heightened times. That's what I think is fantastic about it, that it's, yeah, that it's a, it's a, yes, it's about relaxing, but it's about using that state to manage the tough stuff. That's super interesting. Um, what are some of the things that you are seeing 
in the behaviors of others and those around you, which you hope will stick. Well, I just, earlier today, I uh, meditated with a group of ladies who've done my courses and they, uh, we have a Monday meditate. And what was really, it's just so nice to hear the way that they're managing this situation, you know, that especially um, when they talk about the fact how they know they would have once handled it. Yes. I'm managing it now. So those sorts of things, there's that ability to go, oh, I'm feeling really stressed right now. I'm just going to take a breath or I need to go for a walk or I just need to walk away from this moment and not react. I think that's yeah. the real beauty. Down-regulate. Um, and I think that that's, you know, if, if anything, that that's really nice. I'm, my son is, um, is um, he, when I first started all this, he was like, don't try, don't try, you know, don't do the mindfulness stuff on me. Don't come here with your voodoo. <laughs> During year 12 and uh and so you know he's sort of he's reading glide he's just doing one chapter every so often so you know that's nice um and i think just um as you as i said that little friend that i've got who who i mentor just what's amazing um is we talk about it all the time just giving ourselves permission to feel what we're feeling that otherwise it stays trapped in our bodies and it dictates anyway what we're you know what our thoughts are how we act and so to watch her, you know, have faith that, yeah, she can have a good cry and it's actually a very healing thing. It processes the, what you're feeling and that you are stronger on the other side of it to come back and, you know, sit back down at the desk and to face, do what you've got to do and, and all the other things she's got on. Um, I think that that just helping people to, to yeah, I'm, I'm, over and over, like another friend of mine is working in the media. She did um, MBSR last year with me and, you know, she called me and said, Elise, I'm so pleased that I've got those skills now, just the capacity to, oh, know that I've got a space to breathe. Just take a breath, just steady yourself. It's going to be okay. And it's not to say, you know, um, older people who hear about mindfulness, they'll say, well, that's just common sense, isn't it? And maybe in the times in the years gone by when there was time to take a breath but if we're caught in that thought of like i don't have time don't have time don't have enough money don't have enough sleep don't have enough it's very hard to even think oh yeah i'm, I'm i've got permission to take a deep breath and steady myself here before i go uh any further so i think that's the beauty of it so it's very um it's very it's reassuring for the people i teach and it's so painful for people who who you know it would help. <laughs> yes. It's not willing to do it. And you can't force people to do it. Yes. Um, and you just you want to shake them and say, I can help you. <laughs> like, I can, this doesn't have to be so hard. But it's yes. not what you can, it's just not the right thing. Yes. Because you can always get to this selfish point where, God, life would be better if everybody just did this. Because <laughs> you can see it and feel it. Yeah. That's right. But, but everyone has to come to, I came to it at my own time. I wasn't ready to believe even then, as I said to you, I was walking, listening to my um, meditations, breath meditations. So I still wasn't ready to sit still. And it took me about six weeks to sort of sit still and decide, okay, right, this, this has something. Even though I got that first moment of liberation, I was still like, no, no, moving's okay. <laughs> I can okay. Thanks very much. <laughs> And besides the obvious meditating, are there any other things that you're doing right now routinely to keep yourself nice and grounded? Oh, I quite enjoy, um, just really nice having my husband and son home. <laughs> I mean, I'm a bit of a loner, so it's kind of surprising, I suppose, but um, 
you know, we've just got a little routine. It's it's just nice. Um, and of course, you know, you, I've got a 17 year old, so he's never here. So it's really nice to have him around. Um, and I learned, you know, I learned Spanish uh, just, just casually, like um, I do it at the local WEA. Um, so those courses were, they were sort of cut short at the end of last term, but you know, we're in contact and we're going to start again. So I, I do things like that. We have lots of friends. I walk all the time. Um, can't swim at the moment, but um, yeah, I have. And, you know, I've, I think that the skills that um, I now have are, you know, they can be just used anytime. I don't have to be sitting and meditating to use them. You know, you're, you're using them constantly. So, um, yeah, I think just staying connected to people, just knowing that what we need as humans just basically is the, to be safe, to feel that we're resourced and to and to be connected. So, you know, we can tune into that anytime and actually ground ourselves in the present moment. At this moment, I'm okay. This moment I'm safe, this moment I'm resourced, this moment I'm connected. And what may happen in the future, we'll deal with when it happens, not right now. We'll deal with this moment right now. Mm. The last question I ask all my guests on WA Real is if you could take a little nugget of information and just upload it into the collective consciousness so everyone just gets it what would that be what would lisa's nugget be i think in the end i mean uh what would it be oh. it'd be one of those things where you walk away and go i should have said that <laughs> oh yeah most of my guests do that then they text me about 10 minutes later and say, can we do this instead? I was like, no, you had your chance. <laughs> and I put you on the spot for a reason. I think um, what it is, is to um, forgive yourself when, um, forgive yourself in moments of, um, yeah, look, I think it would be the, the three tenets of self-compassion, which is number one, talk to yourself like a friend. Number two, connect with the fact that we're all humans and we're all special and unique in that way. Just it doesn't matter if we disagree with one another we can still we can still find commonness as, as human beings who want to be happy and the third is to yeah not take everything personally doesn't yeah. it's happening to you it's happening to all of us and to just be mindful of that and to be kind to ourselves and others that's more than one little nugget i know but <laughs> i'm cheating oh I'll, I'll let you do it's like a collective big chunk of nugget you've just put up there awesome <laughs> lisa it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you today thanks for having me on if um, people want to find you where can they come and find you uh well um on instagram i'm the least at the lisa forest double r um i'm on facebook my i've got um, lisa forest is my public page and also um as you mentioned evermind um you can contact me through that so that's www.evermind.com.au don't put the au on you'll go to some strange place in spain <laughs> fair enough Lisa, thank you so much. Okay, thanks.